I am sitting in a tiny, sparse stone hut at the top of a North Devon cliff in southwest England, overlooking the sea, engulfed in swirls of wind and rain. Outside is an enticing sign. Ronald Duncan's writing hut is open. This is where the West Country poet and playwright, best known for writing the libretto of Benjamin Britten's opera The Rape of Lucretia, used to spend his working days. His former home, West Mill, where I'm currently staying, is just down the steep coastal path. Leaving through his autobiography, All Men Are Islands, I realize that what interests me about Duncan is not his literary friendships with people like T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, and Gerald Brennan, but his adventurous streak and voracious appetite for living. After leaving Cambridge in the early 1930s, he pawned his clothes, bought himself a second-hand coat and slouch hat, and then trudged across the slag heaps of Chesterfield in search for work in a coal mine. Being mistaken for a gypsy due to his dark complexion, and claiming he had worked with horses in a circus, Duncan landed himself a job looking after thirty-five pit ponies at the bottom of a shaft. This month-long immersion in working-class life, reminiscent of George Orwell's excursions, down and out on the streets of East London, was an unusual escapade for a budding esthete descended from wealthy Austro-German aristocrats. Duncan then set off for India, where he lived on an ashram with Gandhi. During World War II, this experience inspired him not only to become a conscientious objector, but to conduct an experiment in utopian living, running his farm at West Mill as a commune. Unfortunately, several of the poets and pacifists who joined him were more interested in writing verse and squabbling than milking cows, and the venture faded into failure. Despite this, it was emblematic of Duncan's efforts to take action rather than merely pontificate about his political ideals. What really motivated Ronald Duncan? What was at the psychological root of his being? I find the answer buried in the middle of his book, where he spells out his philosophy of life, or rather, death. It is one of the most evocative descriptions I have ever read of what it can mean to seize the day. I was, and am, acutely aware that life is ephemeral, limited, and brief. I never wake up in the morning without being surprised at being alive. I never go to sleep without wondering whether I shall wake up. Death, to me, was the reality. Yet everybody I met and saw seemed unaware of it. They seemed to live as if they would live forever. How else could they spend forty years marking exercise books, going to an office to earn the money, which would enable them to go on going to an office to earn the money, which would enable them to... I could see a skull beneath every bowler hat. I was obsessed with the feeling that I was a small boat floating on an ocean, and the ocean was death. As I sit in Duncan's former clifftop writing hut, making notes on this passage, there is a sudden knock at the door. A woman, in sensible walking shoes, peers inside and sees me at the old desk with my fingers poised on my laptop, staring out across the Atlantic. She looks me up and down and asks hesitantly, are you Ronald Duncan? I'm not, and neither are most people, in the sense that relatively few of us feel such a daily proximity to death and such an affinity with it. Yet recognizing the ephemeral nature of existence and being able to look death in the eye or float on its ocean is perhaps the most crucial ingredient of carpe diem living. Some people, 
like Ronald Duncan, appear to be born with this capacity for death awareness, or may have absorbed it from their religious education, as is the case with many Catholics and Buddhists. Others, however, have to make a conscious effort to bring the reality of mortality into their minds, so it can spur them to wake up and grasp the possibilities of life. As Albert Camus scribbled in one of his notebooks, Come to terms with death. Thereafter, anything is possible. The challenge is that both the human psyche and the societies we live in do their very best to shield us from thinking about death. So in this chapter, with some help from a Californian tech entrepreneur, a bored Japanese bureaucrat, and a Russian social climber, I want to explore how we can bring death closer to our lives so it can stir us to seize the day. Over the centuries, humankind has invented a number of ways to do this, which can take the form of...